When you mess up, however uh, unintentionally, or when you hurt someone or you screw something up, what's your favorite method of apology? Perhaps you'd like to put that in the chat if you feel that you could share that with us. How do you atone for your mess-ups? I've got some examples here of some ways that perhaps people might try to atone when they mess up. Maybe it's a box of chocolates uh, as your way of atoning or saying sorry. Maybe it's a, it's a bunch of flowers. Maybe if it's that special person in your life, you like to try to say sorry and atone for your mess-ups with a, a special candlelit dinner. Maybe it's a, it's a bottle of champagne that you like to do. Or, or maybe if perhaps you've messed up with your kids, if you've got kids and you, you kind of haven't been giving them the attention that you should do, you like to get them a, a special toy to somehow atone for that. What's your favorite way of saying sorry when you need to atone? In 2008, Will Smith starred in a movie called Seven Pounds. It's a movie all about atonement. It's a real tearjerker, by the way, in case you've never watched it. I feel I should give you that warning. In that movie, the main character, played by Will Smith, spends his time attempting to atone for a serious mistake, which we don't get revealed to us until the end of the movie. He donates a kidney, bone marrow, and ultimately actually gives up everything in an attempt to atone for his mistake. You know, I suspect most of us understand the concept of making amends, of saying sorry in some kind of way, of atoning for the mess-ups that we make, even if some of us find saying sorry harder than others. Making amends or saying sorry to someone we hurt or doing something to make amends, that's normal, isn't it? But what if when we messed up and we hurt someone else, instead of us taking the initiative to make amends with them, they took the initiative and led the atonement process? That would be weird, right? That's not normal. And that's why I still remember today what happened in 1987 when I was 17 years of age in a little town called Enniskillen, which is right in the middle of Northern Ireland. Gordon Wilson was a draper who was with his daughter Marie, who was a nurse, in the town on that day in 1987 during a Remembrance Day parade. Unbeknownst to them, the provisional IRA had planted a bomb and it exploded during the parade, injuring Wilson and killing his daughter. And in an interview given to the BBC just hours after the bombing, Wilson, who, remember, had just lost his daughter, murdered, said this, I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. He went on to say, she, Marie's in heaven and we shall meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. He went on to call for forgiveness. He begged people not to seek reprisal and revenge. And as the historian Jonathan Barden recounts, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. And you know, that moment and those words of Gordon Wilson are still considered by many to be a turning point in the troubles that ultimately led to peace. And Wilson himself went on to form an organization that campaigned for peace and reconciliation. You know, that's not normal, is it? I'm not sure you know whether I could have done that in a similar situation. It's weird and amazing and wonderful to think that Gordon was able to offer unconditional forgiveness to the people who'd murdered his daughter. It was amazing that his response to that tragedy was to serve the cause of peace. 
You know, Wilson was a man of strong faith in God, and I'm sure it was his faith that inspired him. And I still remember it so vividly all these years later. I still remember that interview on the news, and I remember it because it wasn't normal. It was extraordinary. You know, normal says when someone hurts you or messes up, whether deliberately or not, it's their responsibility to say sorry. It's their responsibility to atone. And then maybe you might forgive them and you can move on. But Gordon Wilson offered unconditional forgiveness first. He took the initiative. That's not normal. You know, what happens when we hurt God? When we mess up, diverting from the plan that God has for us, how would we atone for that? Now, most of the religions we see and know about in our world, they start with the question, what can I do to make amends to God? What does my apology need to look like? What's the equivalent of a bunch of flowers, a box of chocolates, a special toy, a bottle of champagne, a candlelit dinner, when it comes to atoning for my mess-ups in relationship to God? What should my apology look like? And most of those religions, they have things that people need to do to atone or to make amends with the God or gods of that religion. It's all about what we need to do to clear the way to be able to access the God or gods of that religious system. You see, religion is externally focused. It says, if I behave the right way, then I might be able to please God to atone for my mess-ups and he then might graciously grant me access to him. But the problem with religion is that it usually leads to one of two destinations. The first one is pride. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm okay, you're not, because I'm doing these things according to my religious system to get myself right with God. So therefore I'm okay, but you're not if you're not doing those things. It's pride. The second thing that religion often leads to, the second destination it can sometimes lead to, is despair. You know, I'm not good enough. I couldn't possibly give enough champagne or enough bunches of flowers or enough candlelit dinners or enough glorious toys. I couldn't possibly do enough stuff to earn God's favour. And there are these other people in this religious system who are giving bigger boxes of chocolates, bigger bottles of champagne, bigger bunches of flowers. They're doing way better than me. How can I possibly make the grade? It's the other problem with religion. It can lead us to despair. But you know, Christianity is different. Christianity leads to a totally different destination. And I want to try and show you why and how with the help of someone who is uniquely placed to help us understand all of this. Because he had grown up in a way of accessing God that said it was all about what you do and all about what your family has done. And then in a moment, everything changed for him. His name was Paul and he was one of the founders of the very first churches that ever existed. And he wrote these letters to these people in some of these churches. And he wrote to a bunch of people in one of those churches in a place called Philippi, which is in modern day Greece. And I want to look at some verses from a letter, that letter that he wrote to the Philippians in chapter three. And we're going to use them to talk about whether or not it's weird to believe that God takes the initiative, whether or not it's weird to believe that God offers unconditional forgiveness because he did the work of atoning for us, not the other way around. We're going to ask this question, is it weird to believe that Jesus died for our sins in an act of atonement, in an act that was so wildly wonderful that it changed the world? 
So let's look at these verses from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. If you want to follow along, the words are going to appear on the screen. I'm going to get rid of some of this stuff so you'll actually be able to see them. The words are going to appear on the screen. If you want to follow along on the YouVersion Bible app, which is something we love around here, you can download to that, to that, that to your phone or your tablet. There's a YouVersion live event right now uh, for this uh, live stream, and you can follow along there too. So let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Sorry, I'm still going to get rid of some of this stuff. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to start. Whoops, we're going to start at verse four. It says this, and this is Paul speaking. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, what that means is when Paul's talking about having his confidence in the flesh, he's talking about his family history. You know, in the ancient world, when Paul was writing this, your ancestry was really important. And it was really important in the Jewish religious system of which Paul had been born and raised and in which he had lived and worked as a rabbi. There was a pride in that religious system and structure in the physical descent, in tracing back ancestors and family and religious roots to some of the key characters in the Jewish faith, people like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that we can read about in the Old Testament. This sense of rootedness also gave them a sense of pride And it gave them a sense of being superior to those who didn't share their ancestry. So Paul is saying, I've got more reasons than anybody else because of my family to be kind of proud of my ancestry. Then he goes on in the next few verses to lay out his Jewish religious credentials. He says this in verses five and six, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's saying, these are my religious credentials. If verse 4 was about his ancestry, these verses are about his behavior, his external appearances, what he did. He's saying, you know, he's being fairly confident here, he was the best of the best when it came to religious practices and rituals. He had this confidence in his religion and in his own abilities and adherences to his religious practices that they would save him. See, he has all the right ancestry, he's doing all the right stuff, he's got all the right jobs on his CV, rabbi, persecutors of the church, all that sort of stuff. But you see, this is all about what he's done. But as he's about to explain, he has found a better way, which he actually is about to excitedly explain to us. And what comes next is one big long sentence, even though in our translations of the Bible it's split up. Uh, Actually, it's one big long sentence. And, And I think Paul just is like, has all this excitement that's just spilling out of him, which is why it's just like, boom, 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 this big sentence. So let's read it out first of all as one big long sentence, and then we'll dig around in it a little bit. These are verses seven to nine. Paul, like all this excitement spilling out of him. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. (gasps) Take a breath. It's this wonderful long sentence of excited kind of stuff spilling out of Paul because of what he's found. 
Well, let's go back and just dig our way through it a little bit. Let's go back to verse 7 to begin with. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, I found a better way. All that other stuff, my ancestry, my CV, they're nothing compared to that new thing that I found. Then in verse 8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. Nothing else compares. He says, I found something way better, something that you can't possibly attach a price to. And in fact, he says, all that other stuff where I used to put my hope and my faith and my confidence, he says, all of that is rubbish because of the surpassing goodness of knowing Jesus. He says, all of that is garbage or rubbish. He's saying that all that he used to consider that he had, his religious credentials, his religious practice, his ancestry, all of that is rubbish in comparison with having Jesus in his life. And this, this word, he, he, rubbish or garbage, in Greek, the, Paul, the word that Paul used was actually skubala. That's the original Greek in which he wrote this letter. It actually means human excrement. When it's translated garbage or rubbish in our versions of the Bible, it, it's a non-offensive way. The people who have translated it are trying not to be offensive. It's a non-offensive way of actually translating a really offensive word that means human excrement. Some other translations of the Bible sometimes, sometimes translate this word dung, but that isn't really enough either. I probably don't need to tell you what the word is. I'm sure you're getting the picture by now, but it's a strong and offensive word. Paul is saying all of this is human excrement in comparison to what I have now found. So why is all this stuff compared to Jesus? Why is it all nonsense? How does that work? What's the big difference? Why are you feeling so strongly, Paul? Well, in verse 9, we're told, he says, I have found something that doesn't rely on a righteousness of my own or my efforts, but that comes from knowing God. It doesn't come by trying to keep the law and on the basis of my religious background. No, it comes a different way. It comes from knowing God. It doesn't come from his own righteousness. He has found a different way, a way of being right with God, an atonement that comes from Jesus and his heavenly father. And it is a righteousness that comes from God, Paul says, on the basis of faith. Not from anything he has done. See, this is a complete about turn. And I think this would have been a huge relief for Paul. You know, after all that striving, all that working, all that self-pride of trying to do everything himself, suddenly the weight is lifted. Somebody else has done it for him. And what has Jesus done to make all this possible? Well, he's paid a price. He's died on a cross. How does that work? How does Jesus dying save me? Well, you see, the wages of sin is death. Because mess-ups, screw-ups, sin, without atonement, leads to death. The death of relationships, the death of joy, the death of hope, the death of relationship with God. You know this. A relationship where no one ever says sorry is doomed. A relationship without any atonement is doomed. It dies. So the wages of sin, the wages of unatoned mess-ups, is death. 
But by being put to death, Jesus pays the price so he can reach out. And by being put to death, we see a graphic demonstration of one person giving up his life for the sake of everybody else. There's not a more powerful thing to do than that. There's not a more powerful display than that. Is it weird for the injured party to reach out and offer unconditional atonement and forgiveness? Yes, absolutely. That's why Gordon Wilson's story is so remarkable. That's why we still remember it today. Is it normal for someone to pay the price for somebody else's mess-ups? No. But that is the very heart of the Christian story. That's what Jesus did. Pay for other people's mess-ups, yours and mine. It's not normal. It's weird. You know, the same Paul who wrote this letter that we've been looking at today said uh, in another one of his letters that the message of the cross where Jesus died is considered foolish to the religious people of his day who wanted signs from heaven. That it also seemed foolish to those who weren't religious but sought answers to the big questions of life from humanism or from other human means. So much so, it was so foolish that when those groups of people heard about the message of the cross, it offended the religious and appeared like nonsense to everybody else. But Paul goes on to say, those who had discovered its brilliance and, in, and its joy, it's the power and wisdom of God. Is it weird that God would send Jesus to die for my sins? Yes. Is it normal? No. Is it brilliant? Absolutely. Because it's the ultimate demonstration of love and of the desire for reconciliation. And that's what God has done. You know, we all mess up. We all do things we shouldn't. We all don't do things that we should. You know this. If you're being honest, you know this. We all fall way short and way short of what God's plan would be for us. Because it hurts us and it hurts other people and it hurts our potential for connection with God. But instead of waiting for us to make the first move, God makes it. He reaches out, he sends his son and allows him to die on a cross in a graphic demonstration of love and mercy and grace and the unconditional forgiveness and a graphic demonstration of atonement. You know, the payment for sin is death. But instead of us dying, Jesus dies. And even more important than that, he rises again from the dead to show that sin is not the end of the story. Not even death is the end of the story. And anything else is garbage in comparison to that. Anything else is excrement in comparison to that. Is it weird to believe that Jesus died for my sins? I don't know. You answer that after this talk this morning. Is it weird? Maybe. Maybe the world would say that, but I don't care, and I don't think you should either, because it's too wonderful to ignore. I want to finish by talking to two groups of people. If you're exploring faith, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want to invite you to discover the gloriously wonderful truth that is that God has made the first move to reach out to you. He has paid the price for your mess-ups. Maybe today you would reach out and take from God this free gift he is offering you. And if you count yourself a Christian, and I count myself in this, let's not let this glorious truth go lukewarm in us. 
It's so easy to allow that to happen. We need to be reminded, and I hope I've done this today, we need to be reminded that this isn't normal. It isn't normal for the injured party to make the first move. It isn't normal for God to reach out to us to ensure that there is nothing that we can do that would make him withdraw his reach from us. You know, our relationship with God doesn't depend on what we've done or what we do because he's done all that's necessary. It's not normal, but it is wonderfully, gloriously, brutifully and brilliantly unique and extraordinary. God has paid the price. He has offered us unconditional love and forgiveness and we don't need to strive to earn his favour. You know, it's the greatest gift God could give to us. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's the greatest gift we can give to the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for anybody who has been watching or listening to this, uh, either live or on demand, who perhaps hasn't yet discovered or hadn't yet discovered the glorious beauty and weirdness and wonderfulness of what God would do for us, what you have done for us. Lord, I pray today that they might receive it, maybe for the first time, that gift of acceptance and love and unconditional forgiveness. Pray for anybody who's engaging with this, who has been striving somehow, striving because they feel they need to earn your favor or somebody else's favor, striving because they think they need to live up to some system or societal pressure or cultural norm. And they're just exhausted from the striving. Lord, I pray today that they would receive your unconditional love and grace that doesn't need to be strived for, that just needs to be received. And for those who are engaging with us today who, who would say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I accept this. But who, if we're honest, it's gone a bit lukewarm in us. And that today has been remind, a reminder of how gloriously wonderful, beautifully brilliant it really is. I pray you'd set our hearts on fire with a passion and a love for you that comes from receiving this gift anew and afresh. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to offer it to the world. The greatest gift we could give the world is your love and unconditional grace. Amen.